This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So today we're going to continue to discuss this model of consciousness, of transformation of consciousness, and the story or a metaphor, maybe, for how, <clears throat> how the self this persnickety pain in the butt self <laughs> that keeps asserting itself uh, is created and sustained within this model. But maybe before I start launching back into the model, uh, are there any questions from yesterday? There were a couple of rumblings about survival and the need for having a self. Evolutionarily speaking, it's very handy to have a self. We protect it, we feed it, we take it to the restroom, we allow it to survive, we encourage it to survive, right? Now, Tell me, do you think that other life forms have a sense of self? And do they need that sense of self in order to survive and flourish? Cherry? I think great apes have a sense of self. And when I'm gardening and there's a bug in front of me and I look at it and it goes, oh, don't get me. I'm thinking it. It has this automatic thing. I don't know if it's going unthreatened, but it's certainly acting. It's responding. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll read the article recently that came out that basically proved that dogs <laughs> take on the emotional life of their owners. <laughs> like, we knew this. <laughs> what about plants? Does anybody have a relationship with plants? Like a very strong, a close relationship? Yeah. Do plants have a sense of self, do you think? Maybe it's yourself that's part of the plant because you're providing and they're selfing because of what you're doing and what they're doing is making you. So there's this proverb, the garden. So is the garden, such is the gardener. Like, mm -hmm. correlation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an example of, of what we'll be getting into today when we start talking about the three natures. But in terms of the self that is up for discussion, what is it? What are the characteristics of self that we... We're not even that too, you know, too clear on it, right? It's very nebulous, but it's one of those things where you know it when you see it. And so like my example yesterday of being falsely accused and how the sense of self comes up very strongly in the, uh, right? And all the, the sticky seeds that have been planted from 
you know, throughout karmic history, throughout our karmic consciousness, they all get pulled up along with the sense of self, the sense, very strong feeling of me or mine, right? There's an example, a, a, uh, a teaching story of, um, I can't remember where I first heard it. It might be, it might have been in the Dalai Lama's book, um, on the on the middle way but I'm not I'm not sure but the story is imagine that you're in a boat a little rowboat and you just kind of wake up in this rowboat and it's foggy out and you can't really see but you're in the middle of some body of water or not maybe not the middle you just can't you can't tell where you are in it and then the fog sort of, it's like the pre-dawn and the fog starts to clear a little bit. And you notice that there's this giant barge coming straight towards you. And you, you know, it's not, maybe it's not that giant. So you yell at it, like, stop, I'm over here. Right? And it's coming towards you and it's going to collide with you. And so you're kind of in a panic. Right? This is a survival impulse that comes up of like, how do I get out of the situation? But the, it's this other boat is coming towards you and you get really, you know, you go through this whole range of emotions like fear, maybe anger, indignance, like you're, you know, shouting as loud as you can, trying to get them to see you. And it, nothing, nothing happens. Like nothing, no, there's no response from the boat. It just keeps coming. And then it collides into you, right? And it, maybe you're, you're fine. You, you know, you get jostled around. And maybe you're thinking at this point in the story, you're really angry that they didn't stop, that they didn't listen to you. They didn't listen to your calls. And it's only then that you notice that the boat is empty. There's nobody in the boat. So all this, maybe you've just developed this whole story about how you're going to give the captain what for and you know, or maybe it's just a, it's a, one person who you're going to get angry with who's in this boat who's not listening to you. And yet, as soon as you realize that the boat is empty, there's no pilot of the boat, what happens to that anger? What happens to that frustration? What happens to the story that you've told yourself? It kind of disappears. Maybe you create another story, because we're really good at that. <laughs> who left this boat unmoored? <laughs> Yeah, it's gotta be someone's fault, right? So this is this is the the issue at hand. The suffering that we feel when we have, I and mean, it's not that there's no pain, as we can all attest after sitting for a couple of days. It's not that there's no pain. Pain happens. However, oftentimes our suffering is far multiplied because of the stories that we tell about the causes of the pain, our strategies for avoiding the pain. And it's not like all of that goes away when you wake up to it, when you wake up to your true nature. It's not like pain goes away, nor the strategizing. What does? According to this model, what is it that can fall away? In order, in, according to your own experience, as a meditator, what is that extra piece that's added that doesn't need to be there? Self. Self. 
Not the idea that there is a conventionally designated self. That's there. But that that self is somehow independently arising without dependence on everything else that's also arising. It's very easy, and we see this too when we think of like, um, maybe I kind of imagine that uh, in today's dating world, when you have uh, like an application like, I don't know, OkCupid or something like that, right? That you have these, you know, you're looking at these potential partners and they have these attributes that they've listed, right? I don't know, how, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but <laughs> if you imagine that you've got like, oh, look, this person is like, likes cleanliness, that's good, likes, you know, oh, look, they, they like horses, I like horses, you know, so you go through, and then, and then they go to like the other side, you know, and then there's this other side where you're like, oh, I'm not seeing to sports, or I'm not, <laughs> or, you know, oh, this person's, you know, voted for Brexit, or what, you know, whatever, like this, and then it's like, okay, these are the detractors, right? So here we have this, what we, we've been calling feeling, right? Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And we have this ability because our, we're so smart, actually, and we can abstract, right? We're very good abstractors. That we can kind of envision sort of a, an abstract individual. So we're, we're searching for someone who doesn't have things in the negative column, but has lots of positive, right? As opposed to, and I'm not suggesting that like you just go out with whoever, but <laughs> as opposed to um, being with what is. Our abstractions allow us to come up with a fantasy that we then cling to as, oh, this is a potential. The potential me, right? We, can do, we do this to ourselves. We do this to others. We do this you know, all over the place. We abstract away from what's really there, what's uh, present, into something that, some imaginary thing. And it's not that we don't have goals for ourselves, that we don't plan, that we don't have an agenda, right? It's almost like we fool ourselves into believing that something else is when it isn't uh, present, so I wanted to go back in history. So the first day we talked a little bit about the chronology of the turning of the wheel of the Dharma from the Buddha through early Buddhism into the origins of Mahayana Buddhism that led to a flourishing of the Prajnaparamita literature, which we've been chanting every day. And in the Prajnaparamita literature, as you can see, there is a negating of all these things that were the early Buddhists put up as, here are the dharmas, here are the objects, or the, the pieces of reality. And some of these pieces of reality were the twelvefold chain, the four noble path, the, four, uh, the eightfold noble path, the four noble truths. And then, as I mentioned, Nagarjuna, who we haven't spent any time on, I've got too many things up here, I feel like I've... <laughs> mm. Nagarjuna, who was uh, second century, this the proliferation of the Prajnaparamita literature with the rise of Mahayana 
represents what's called the, the second turning, the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma, which moved away from asserting the existence of these elements. And here I'll just give you a list of some of the, some of the elements that Nagarjuna tackles in his uh, master work. He examines, these are the kinds of things that he examines, conditions, motion, the senses, the aggregates, all elements, desire and the desirous, the conditioned, agent and action, the prior entity, fire and fuel, the initial and final limits, suffering, compounded phenomena, connection, essence, bondage, action, and their fruits, the self and entities, time, combination, becoming, destruction, the Tathagata, errors, the Four Noble Truths, Nirvana, the Twelvefold Chain of Causation, and Views. And he goes through systematically, each of those is a, is a chapter. He does a chapter on each of those. And goes through and systematically, through his, his reductio ad absurdum, he goes through and says, this is what, how we treat this. We treat this thing as being fundamentally absolutely real. And yet, and he goes through and through his, logistic, his logical process of reductio ad absurdum, he comes to a contradiction each time we assert something like this to be true and real, fundamentally real, not conditioned real, but real real. Like when we say, oh, that's real, and we're talking about something in the world, we don't, even though, like, there's, of course, there's this part that's like, okay, yeah, that's, that came about due to conditions, but we think it actually exists. And we do that with other people and with ourselves. And we do that, and the early Buddhists, when they came up with their Abhidhamma, they did it with all mental phenomena and all elements of the universe. All elements. These are the dharmas, the small, with a small d. Now, when Nagarjuna does this, he goes through systematically everything that he thinks can be gone through, and then he even goes through the concept of emptiness or things not having an abiding self. He goes through and shows the emptiness of the emptiness itself. Now, in this great work, The Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way, he explicates his theory on the two truths. Are you all familiar? Anyone here familiar with the two truths? Okay. So the two truths are the conventional truth and the absolute truth. Now, the conventional truth is our everyday, day-to-day -day, uh, things that we say about ourselves, the elements of the world, and the universe, right? Now, what makes them true? Like, what makes the conventional truth true? If I draw a ball out of a ball, that's what I expect it to do? Maybe. If you believe it, it doesn't necessarily make it true. <laughs> Everybody agrees. It has to be conventionally true, meaning it's true by convention. So, by con some kind of consensus. So, in terms of the, the sort of, I think that what you brought up, Anne, is like a law of nature, right? Like gravity, 
Again, how we talk about and discuss gravity is by convention. Now, it happens to be the convention of scientific inquiry and experimentation, right? And so there's all kinds of ways that you can delve into all the things that we could say about the entire universe being conventional truths, from things that are mere opinions or beliefs that have no you know, uh, experiential evidence, right? That's, that could be, become a conventional truth, right? Or uh, value judgments that you can't look into nature to verify their veracity, right? Because it's a value judgment, but it's conventionally could be a very shared value, like killing people is wrong or killing people who don't deserve it, maybe. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, you could back up and, and uh, clarify what, what you mean by convention. Yes, Cole. Um, are empirical truths considered conventional? Yes. They're considered conventional truths, exactly. So Nagarjuna goes through, and when he talks about these two truths, I wanted to just read this one section because I feel like this is something that when we were talking yesterday, we, I, don't, I didn't feel like I adequately portrayed the background of the Prajnaparamita literature as Vasubandhu and Asanga step into the scene. Okay? Okay, so this is a quote from Nagarjuna. He's kind of replying, he's playing this uh, sort of dialogue between the person who has, you know, questions and then he answers the questions. So this is how it goes. Actually, I'm going to back up. If all of this is empty, neither arising nor ceasing, then for you it follows that Four Noble Truths do not exist. If the Four Noble Truths do not exist, then knowledge, abandonment, meditation, and manifestation will be completely impossible. So this is the, the person who's, you know, poking at Nagarjuna's uh, words. If these things do not arise, then the four fruits will not arise. Without the four fruits, there will be no attainers of these fruits, nor will there be any faithful. If so, the spiritual community will not exist, nor will the eight kinds of person. If the Four Noble Truths do not exist, there will be no true Dharma. If there is no doctrine and no spiritual community, how can there be a Buddha? If emptiness is conceived of in this way, the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are contradicted. Hence, you assert that there are no real fruits and no Dharma. The Dharma itself and the conventional truth will be contradicted. We say that this understanding of yours... Oh, here's Nagarjuna's reply. We say that this understanding of yours of emptiness and the purpose of emptiness and of the significance of emptiness is incorrect. As a consequence, you are harmed by it. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. Within, without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be understood or cannot be taught. Without understanding the significance of the ultimate truth, liberation is not achieved. By a misperception of emptiness, a person of little intelligence is destroyed. 
like a snake incorrectly seized or a spell incorrectly cast. For that reason, that the Dharma is deep and difficult to understand and to learn, the Buddha's mind despaired of being able to teach it. You have presented fallacious refutations that are not relevant to emptiness. Your confusion about emptiness does not belong to me. <laughs> For him to whom emptiness is clear, everything becomes clear. For him to whom emptiness is not clear, nothing becomes clear. When you foist on us all of your errors, you are like a man who has mounted his horse and forgotten that very horse. If you perceive the existence of all things in terms of their essence, then this perception of all things will be without the perception of causes and conditions. Effects and causes and agent and action and conditions and arising and ceasing and effects will all be rendered impossible. Whatever is dependently co-arisen, that is to be understood, that is explained to be emptiness. That, being a dependent designation, is itself the middle way. Something that is not dependently arisen, such a thing does not exist. Therefore, a non-empty thing does not exist. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, uh, more examples of suffering and of the Four Noble Truths and so forth. Do you, do you all get this, the, the point that he is making? Right. So he is not asserting emptiness is not a thing. It is an absence of something that we impute. We impute a realness that is extra. And when we impute that realness to something, it's not that the, it's completely unreal. It's just not real in the way that we impute it. So I wanted to go through this again, this, uh, the, the verses. And this time I'm going to read a, a different translation. This is the third translation of Vasubandhu's 30 verses. I will read you the Cook translation. I have 12 translations in this. The metaphor of self and dharmas evolves in various ways upon the transformation of consciousness. The transforming consciousness is threefold. Retribution, thought, and perception of the external realm First, the alaya, store consciousness, is also retribution and holder of all seeds. That which it grasps and holds, its location and its perceptions are imperceptible. It is always associated with mental contact, attention, feeling, conceptualization, and volition. In it, the only feeling is one of indifference. It is undefiled and morally neutral. And the same is true of mental contact, etc. It always evolves like a flowing stream and is abandoned in the state of arhatship. Next, the second transforming consciousness. This consciousness is called manas, or thought. Are we allowed to interrupt if we don't understand something? Or sure. Do you want to just... um, it might take a while. That might take a while. Yeah, maybe let's go through it. 
Okay, so we're on to the second transforming consciousness that, that is called manas, thought. It evolves supported by that store consciousness, alaya, and with it as its object, and has the nature and character of thinking. It is always associated with four passions, delusion about self, view of self, self-conceit, and love of self, along with others such as contact, it is defiled and morally neutral and bound to the place of birth. In the arhat, the samadhi of cessation and the supramundane path, it does not exist. Next, the third transforming consciousness with its six-fold distinction. Its nature and character are that of perception of the object and it is good, bad, or neither. They are associated with universal mental activities those mental activities with specific objects, the good, the passions, secondary passions, the non-determined, and all three of the feelings. First, the universal mental activities such as contact, etc. Next, those with specific objects, that is, desire, resolve, memory, samadhi, and discernment, whose objects are not the same. Faith, conscience, sense of shame, the three roots of good, such as non-craving, etc., vigor, serenity, vigilance, indifference, and harmlessness are the good mental activities. The passions are craving, hatred, delusion, pride, doubt, and wrong views. Secondary passions include anger, hostility, dissimulation, vexation, envy, avarice, deceit, hypocrisy, with harmfulness and vanity, lack of conscience and shamelessness, agitation, torpor, unbelief and indolence, negligence, forgetfulness, distraction, incorrect knowing. The non-determined states mean remorse and sloth, meaning remorse and sloth are non-determinate in terms of uh, whether they're uh, wholesome or unwholesome. Applied thought and sustained thought, two pairs in two ways. Supported on the fundamental consciousness, the fundamental consciousness being Alaya, the first five consciousness appear according to conditions, either together or not, like waves supported by the water. Mental consciousness, the sixth consciousness, perceptually appears except in those born among the unconscious celestials and in the two mindless samadhis and in those who are in states of sloth and stupefaction. stupefaction. The various consciousnesses transform as imagination and the imagined. As a result of this, all of these are non-existent. Therefore, all are consciousness only. From the consciousness that is all seeds, transformation occurs in such and such ways. Due to the power of mutual influence, that and that imagination is born. The habit energy of various actions together with the habit energy of the twofold grasping. When prior retribution is exhausted, subsequently produce other retribution. So this is a karmic cycle he's referring to. Because of whatever imagination, such, a, such and such a thing is imagined, this imagined nature does not exist. The nature that is dependent on others is discrimination born of conditions. The perfected nature 
is the eternal privation of the former nature from that dependent nature. We'll get into this more. Therefore, this perfected nature and the dependent on others' nature are neither different nor non-different. Like the nature of impermanence, etc., one not perceived, the other is not perceived. On the basis of these three natures, the threefold natureless is established. Therefore, the Buddha taught with a hidden intention that all dharmas are natureless. The first is naturelessness of characteristics. The next is naturelessness of self-existence. The last is the nature that results from the privation of the former, self and dharmas that are grasped. This is the ultimate truth of all dharmas and is also the same as true suchness because it is eternally so in its nature. It is the true nature of consciousness only. As long as one does not generate consciousness that seeks to abide in the nature of consciousness only, one is still unable to destroy the propensities of the twofold grasping. Setting the, the least thing before one, saying, it is of the nature of consciousness only. One does not really abide in consciousness only, because there is still something that is obtained. Whenever regarding the objective realm, knowledge is completely devoid of something obtained, then it dwells in consciousness only because it is divorced from characteristics of the twofold grasping. Devoid of anything obtained, inconceivable, this is supramundane knowledge. Because of abandoning the twofold coarseness, one realizes the transmutation of the support. It is the pure realm, inconceivable, good, eternal, blissful, and the body of liberation, which in the great Muni is named Dharma, the Dharma body. Okay, so that's the third translation. So, Pat, what was your what was your question? <laughs> well, I think the first thing I didn't understand was when you were talking about the Amaya consciousness, there was something about indifference that was indifference. Right, so it doesn't have an agenda. Think of it as it doesn't have an agenda. It's just a passive... The, the big storehouse doesn't. Yes. Right. There's no self in the big storehouse. What happens in the, so in the, the, going back to the model of the eightfold consciousnesses. So for those of you who weren't here yesterday, we went through, there, the model is of eight consciousnesses. The first six, or the first five are very, we're very, very familiar with. So the first five consciousnesses of eye consciousness, ear, nose, tongue, body, Right? And then the sixth consciousness is mind, mind consciousness, the one that's aware of these other consciousnesses as what they are and can distinguish between them. So eye consciousness doesn't get you know, uh, triggered or activated when a sound appears, unless there's a visual stimulus that goes with that sound, right? So eye consciousness is only aware of eye objects. And they're only aware of those eye objects when the eye object and the eye organ make contact. Then the consciousness is born, a sight. Okay. Now, the mental, the mind consciousness is able to distinguish between these. Oh, look, there's, a, there's the color yellow, right? Or there's a bouncing red ball, or whatever it is. 
the, uh, the, the mind consciousness is able to create a concept about it. So the description of how this happens, how this consciousness arises, is through these three uh, initial, so for example with eye consciousness or the, uh, any of the sense consciousnesses, the five senses, there's some kind of an object, some stimulus, that makes contact with the organ, the ear organ, the nose organ, the body organ, the uh, tongue organ, right? And then this consciousness is born from that contact. What mano-vijnana, the sixth consciousness, mind consciousness does, is take that initial, that consciousness that was born, and it creates comparisons with other consciousnesses. Right? It's, it reflects on this now past consciousness. Right? So far, there's no self. Now, skipping over, so those are the first six. Skipping over the seventh, we're going to go to eighth. The seventh is manas, which is, as I mentioned yesterday, not... Uh, the word manas does not have the same word of consciousness embedded in it. But the eighth consciousness is the alaya, the storehouse consciousness, which is, again, it has in, in the description, it says it has no location. It itself is indifferent. It's just a repository of all of the seeds of our karma, all past actions. And, and Bruce, you brought up the question of cause and effect and how the seeds are both causes and effects. Okay, so when we, and the, the analogy is that of planting a seed that turns into a sprout, and then, you know, with, when you plant a seed, whether it's a wholesome seed or an unwholesome seed or a neutral seed, all of our actions are planting seeds that then ripen. And the idea is that any, any seed that has been planted in storehouse consciousness will eventually ripen if the conditions are such that they get watered. Right? They will come to fruition in some karmic resultant. Right? Now, as that is happening, it could be also planting new seeds. So in Bruce's story about being at the coffee shop and being very generous with time with the server who is late, <laughs> uh, that planted, that could have, you know, that could be both seen as the resultant of past seeds that have been planted, as well as the re-sowing of those seeds. Right? And this is how karma works. Right? It's born out of action, out of intentional action, and then it produces some resultant, some time in the future. Dogen has a fascicle called the karma of the three times. And oftentimes in, in Tibetan Buddhism, you often hear that if you have the resultant from your karmic action come quickly, that's, that's the most beneficial because you've got, kind of got it out, out of the way. Right? <laughs> As opposed to the karma that comes when you've planted seeds that don't get watered or don't get um, activated until maybe late in life or in a next life, right? in the, a later time. And so when things happen and we think, why is this happening? You know, it's like to reflect back on the seeds that have been planted only goes so far in the sense that there are may maybe seeds that have been planted before we were born. And this gets to this question of whether there is a collective storehouse consciousness dependent upon something like culture right? or family history. 
So there's these seeds that get perfumed by our actions. Now, when we sit zazen, we're not perfuming any seeds. So, so I've been told. <laughs> Does that lead to the, Even... the phrase, the stink of zen? <laughs> <laughs> the stink of zen. Now, that, a stink of zen is getting into like zen sickness, which we talked about on the first day. <laughs> Some of the seeds that Bruce sowed when he did this is that maybe he felt very proud of it afterwards. And then also he brought it up at this meeting today. Right, and now, well, now he's planted it in all of our alayas. <laughs> <laughs> it's not of me, this confusion. <laughs> <laughs> it does not belong to me, right? Uh, okay. Yes. So is there a space or a realm where the storehouse consciousness is perceived to exist? Uh, because we can obviously imagine where the other consciousnesses are. Right. So is there like a point of view on that? No. No. There, I mean, it's actually very, dis- very different. Like when he goes through yeah. all of the different kinds of consciousnesses, you know, when he talks about um, Alaya... You know, he says specifically it's identified, it's unidentified in terms of co- ob- concepts of object and location. Whereas, um, and it's also it never stops. Whereas, eye consciousness can stop, right, by closing your eyes, or by being unconscious. Maybe eye consciousness can stop, or hear, you know, sound, uh, ear consciousness, right? There's all kinds of ways in which those consciousnesses don't are not. Constant. However, Alaya is always there. It's all. It's ever present, and it goes forward like a, like a rapid stream. Okay. The same thing with Manas. He just when he describes the Manas. Uh, la, 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 la. Okay. Well, he says associated with the process of Alaya, and depending upon what what Alaya is doing, Manas, which is mentation. Discriminative, discriminative thinking. That's monos. Mo, so going back to the model. So the eighth consciousness is the storehouse consciousness that just holds passively. It holds all the seeds. And what monos, what, how monos comes into the picture, is that you've got these six sense consciousnesses that are the baseline consciousnesses, and then you've got this alaya that stores all of the karmic dispositions. And then manas is where the birth of the self occurs. The manas basically looks at Alaya and thinks of itself, thinks that Alaya is me. And you can see how this works, right? When we think about all of our karmic conditioning, we think about our particular histories, we think about all of our propensities, our uh, personality traits, all of that's Alaya. And when we, Manas takes that and says, oh look, there I am, that must be me. And it basically acts as a conduit between the six sense consciousnesses, um, the five sense consciousnesses, mind consciousness, and Alaya. And so this story, this creation of a self, emerges. Nick? Um... It seems like that self-regard that Manas is dictating, that, that somewhat of the practice of meditation and mindfulness is, is to get away from that by diving into the first six, right? Yes. 
So, um, you said yesterday that Manas isn't necessarily bad. Um, say more. Um, what else did I say? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned in passing that, that we tend to have this. Um, ah, yes, yes. This view that that we need to destroy Manas and then we'll be yes. fine. Yeah. Now, Manas has the ability, the function of being able to discriminate. It. It is kind of the othering aspect. So not only is the self created, but as the self is created, it happens in dependence to an other being created. You can't grow a self without growing an other, right? They come up codependently. And so it is responsible for this, um, this duality, this dividing into dual, dualism where we're, these things that are not actually ultimately separate are, are witnessed and taken as and acted upon as if they are. So from the reading there, the, the metaphor, I love this metaphor, I've never, I don't really think I still don't understand it, but the metaphor of getting on the horse to go find your horse is that this... That was Nagarjuna's metaphor. Yeah. Of just of the kind of cluelessness of like you're, it's, you know not being aware of how it really is. Right. So being caught up in the dream of self, basically, we we know this feeling in our in our lived experience, right. where we feel isolated. We feel like uh, me that that I exist, and that somehow it's in opposition to other things as opposed to that we are all that it's all dependently arising and as a model of consciousness and this being a model right not a Vasubandhu is not saying this is reality he's saying this is a way of understanding this transformation of consciousness and how we get ourselves into trouble so I wanted to um, if I can if uh, there are no other questions, turn to these three natures. What does it mean for the monas to be defiled and yet morally neutral? What's being said there? I think what's being said about the when, it, when something is defiled, it means it's tainted with self. Yeah. Morally neutral is. Yeah, it's interesting because oftentimes when we talk about moral uh, valence, right, we're talking about whether or not something has a component of selfishness. So yeah, that's a good question. But basically, the defiled part is, and this is actually, let me get back to your bringing up what I said about Manas not being all bad. The morally neutral part is that I think is that in in the transformation of, of consciousness in through this is the story of how things kind of normally flow and how self is created. However, there's a practice instruction of how do you get from there to liberation? Right? What happens to manas at the point what happens to all of these consciousnesses at the point of liberation? Anyone? Have a guess? They transcend. They, they trans. They get transformed. 
yeah. Each of these, they don't go away, but they get transformed. As I mentioned yesterday, all of these, the six consciousnesses and the eighth consciousness are all called uh, vijnanas. The word consciousness is embedded in the term itself, whereas manas is kind of on its own. It doesn't have the word consciousness associated with it, which is kind of curious because it's called one of the eight consciousnesses, right? However, the consciousness, the word consciousness in Sanskrit is vijnana, which means to divide, basically to do this othering, to break things into self and object. When our hotship or enlightenment, when, when the storehouse consciousness is all the seeds have come to fruition and no, no new seeds have been planted, after doing lots and lots of zazen, presumably, <laughs> then all of these transform into wisdom as opposed to consciousness. They no longer do this dividing. They don't need to divide anymore. It's not like the, the appearances don't appear. They're just not grasped as being real. This is starting to sound like the, the ones that are not being reborn anymore. That kind of thing, which is getting into... This is still Mahayana. Yeah, what? It's, mean, it's still a Mahayana. It's a Mahayana teaching. But yes. Well, yeah, but I mean, they get to this state where they're not effective anymore. They're, they're all... Well, being... Okay, so imagine that you're a bodhisattva in the world. Are you... Uh, yeah, how much selfing does a bodhisattva do, do you think? So, you can still be a bodhisattva. Right? I mean, it's momentary that your seeds all have no more effect. It's not momentary. No, that's considered like once you've exhausted all of the seeds, you're done. <laughs> you get to check off this wheel of samsara. You're the one who won't be reborn. You're the one who won't, right. You're the one who well, won't be reborn. That's so true. That's my answer. Yeah, yeah. So you have to, uh, if you're a bodhisattva, then you, uh, you actually vow to be reborn, right? As a bodhisattva, you vow to be reborn. But you, you know, it's, you're, you're no longer stuck in the delusion of self and other. I don't know what it's like to be a fully realized bodhisattva. <laughs> but in the story, I imagine, like the, you, you know the descriptions of the magician, where there's a magician, this is an uh, ancient Indian story, you hear it a lot in the sutras, where a magician is like doing their thing and everyone is like, whoa, they just created a whole city, or you know, they've got this apparition that everybody sees. And the question is, does the Buddha see the apparition? If the Buddha doesn't, is not uh, deluded and can't be deluded, does the Buddha see the apparition? And the answer is yes, as an apparition not as the thing that everyone else is like, oh my gosh, look, that, just, that magician just created this thing out of nothing. Right? The, the Buddha sees the illusion, sees how the illusion is created, and sees the emptiness of the, the, the illusion all at once. Whereas us normal, you know, non-enlightened folk get hoodwinked. We think it's real. In this analogy, we may not, but 
Any other questions before I go into the... Yes. I have another question about um, watering the seeds. Yes. Um, it seems like a bodhisattva meditating on compassion would be watering those good mm. seeds, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to grow good things in the world. Yeah. Um, so is it just in zazen that we don't water? Right. So yeah, doing a, taking up a particular practice for a specific result would be you know, producing seeds. Good seeds, it's not a bad thing to produce good seeds. It's just that in order to, for total liberation, you don't think about it. It just manifests naturally. You're not following the precepts. Your life is precept following, but you're not following the precepts. As a Buddha, as a Buddha, your actions just naturally exude precepts because you're so completely interconnected and aware you don't have to make mental note follow the precepts, right? You don't have to study the precepts anymore. Not to say that you don't act. You're, you know, your natural actions are in alignment with precepts. So in, in a sense, it's like a fully realized being doesn't need to do compassion practices. They're just naturally compassionate. So in that way, it's like you're no longer planting the seeds. When we're planting the seeds, there's still some thread of ego of gaining idea, right? There's still some, some impulse of like, I'm going to do this, right? Which is necessary when <laughs> we're not Buddhist. Doing, right, kidding, sitting down. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Sitting zazen, when you come to the zendo, to get to the zendo, you're using all of your karmic alaya <laughs> activity to get to the zendo. Once you're in the zendo and you're just sitting, if you can, just sit. You're not expending any karma. You're not creating any new karma. So, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by the zazen not uh, planting seeds as well. So, is this regardless? Because our, like, if is it regardless or are there ifs? Like, if if someone <laughs> is sitting with the wrong intention. If someone is sitting... Then they're not really sitting zazen. Okay, so like that's kind of my question. Or is there like a, like a halo of just being here? Yeah. In, in some sense, you can say that we're constantly sitting zazen, except that our mental you know, apparatus is doing other things, and so we're actually not. So sitting zazen is kind of like just residing in your Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. Okay, right? gotcha. Mm -hmm. But when we take the 35 minute period and we sit there and start, you know, fussing about this and that and telling stories and getting upset at something that happened yesterday or getting preemptively upset about something that's going to happen tomorrow, like, are we really, are we, are we sitting Zazen? Is Zazen sitting Zazen? Zazen's just fine. It's just sitting, <laughs> doing nothing. It has no, it like, like the Aliyah, it has no, it has no valence. Then is merit karma? Because one of our sutras says uh, that one person sitting um, can, can affect the people around you that don't sit. Yeah. So that's karma. Merit is karma. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I think that it, it's not to say that it doesn't affect. So, like a Buddha is able to affect sentient beings. Right? Mm -hmm. By just beaming compassion at them. Avalokiteshvara, same thing. Mm -hmm. right? 
but they themselves aren't generating karma. But the beneficence, the field of benefaction that's created by a Buddha still has an effect. Right? So you could say that there's um, this is the in, sort of the inherent goodness right, of Buddhahood is this benefaction, this field of benefaction. It's not like just neutral in the sense that well, who could take it or leave it? Who needs a Buddha, right? <laughs> Maureen, did you have a question? Yeah, so, so the way I'm conceptualizing this is like uh, codependent arising is like it's like, you know, electrons, like, and, the, and things, to, right? So things just, like, I'm this constellation of molecules, blah, blah, so are you, right? But then I get to, wait a minute, what about consciousness? So is that a function of this collection of molecules? And I think the answer is probably no. It's, um, it's like from this Buddha realm. Consciousness is from a Buddha realm, or is that? Mm, yeah, I see, what you're, I see what you're getting at, I think. So consciousness in the level of the, the dividing consciousness is... Yeah, yeah, right, right. The other consciousness. Is, is there something the else? The wisdom yeah. part. Like when consciousness is transformed into wisdom, when self, all selfing ceases and all seeds have been exhausted. So all the, so there's a certain point in the, in the path of a bodhisattva where the bodhisattva is not putting new seeds into the ground of Alaya. However, the seeds that have been planted are still fruiting. And so in the, that whole life of the bodhisattva, it is said that that bodhisattva still feels all the effects of their past actions. They just don't create new seeds, but they still have to endure the resultant. Which is why in some practices, like in uh, some of the Tibetan practices, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with the practices themselves, but this idea that somehow you can burn through your karma quickly through tantric practices that are extraordinarily painful, and you have examples of Tibetan saints that do things like throw them their bodies off of cliffs and, you know, as, as ways of burning through karma quickly so that they can attain Buddhahood quickly. As opposed to other forms of Tibetan Buddhism where it's very, you know, you start with prostrations. You start with following the precepts. You don't do these crazy, active, burn, karma-burning processes. And it's not that one form of practice is better than another. It's actually dependent on your conditioning what's best for you, right? So some people gravitate towards the burning, the karma, you know, and maybe they, they aren't really suited for it and then they, you know, crash and burn and then they have, okay, I'm going to start over and start with the prostrations, okay? <laughs> right? So this is like a Buddhist uh, purgatory, right? You're not sinning. You can consider it like a good Buddhist purgatory, right? You're not putting any new holes, holes into the, you know, you're not nailing anything more into the wood, but you, you know, you still have to pull the previous nails out. Yes. I, I just want to speak up. It's the defense of Zazen, <laughs> even though you may be sitting there, you know, worrying and planning and, you know, yeah. You are still embodying this Buddha nature because you're sitting still. Yes, and hopefully you're witnessing, you're you're being with what's happening. What's happening? Hopefully you're being, you're still, you're present to what's happening. Maybe, but you're certainly trying, and you're certainly embodying, just physically Mm -hmm. embodying, which is always inspirational to other people. They don't know what's going on in your head. (laughs) Oh, if they only knew. Right. see the still person that is... Right. 
right. making this supreme effort. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. it's, and yeah. actually, it's even more of an effort when you have a, you know, a distracted mind. Yeah. How much more of an effort is it to sit? Yeah. Can you imagine coming into the end of every period was just, you sit down and like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely when that happens. Yeah. But um, if that's, you know, again, if, if the only time you sit zazen, it's like, if that's what you're looking for in zazen, you're not going to do it for very long, are you? Because as soon as, you know, you have a distracted, you know, period of zazen, you're just like, ah, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go into the three natures, and I'm just going to do this briefly, and we'll talk, we'll pick it up more tomorrow. So the three natures that Vasubandhu talks about, there's actually, he, he wrote another fascicle called The Three Natures, which is specifically on these three natures. But in the text, it's when he starts talking about, so he says, whatever thought through which an object is thought of as a substance. Okay, so again, this word substance, svabhava, is very specific. It doesn't mean like substance like, um, it means like substance as in like substantial essence, like soul, like essence being ontologically real. Okay? So he says, whatever thought through which an object is thought of as a substance, as independently existing from its own side, non-dependent on other things, that's all embedded in the word substance, That indeed is a fabrication. It is not evident. A dependent self-nature is a thought that has arisen depending upon conditions. Then he says, however, the absence of the one prior to it is always the accomplished. What that means is, so he's talking now about three natures, and these are three natures that you can apply to any phenomenon. The three natures are, the first is the imagined nature. It's how things appear. It's the appearance. It's imagination. The second nature, and you can take it of anything, so like this book has an appearance. Now, it has another nature. The the second nature is the other dependent nature, meaning that this, the nature of this book is completely dependent upon other conditions that are not here, that are not present now. So when we look at a book, we imagine... This came from trees. There's actually plastic in here. There's a plastic uh, coating around the wire frame of the spiral. Right? So if we look at something deeply and try to find what the elements are and where they came from, who knows where this came from? <laughs> who knows where the trees that made this book came from? Right? Who knows about the hands, the the human hands that went into making this paper? The the ink that's on these pages, the words and the exact constellation of the words and letters to each other. Like when you look at something, anything, and you try to really see its true nature, you can't stop looking. Because if you say, oh no, that's just a book, we know what that is. Sure, conventionally true. We can say, pass me the book, and somebody passes it to us. Right? It has a functionality in convention. However, ultimately, what is this thing? Ultimately, what is it? Could there be trees without sun? No. So the whole universe is contained within this. 
when we look deeply, we see that this thing is actually made up of elements that are not the book. They're made up of all other elements. Elements of water and wind and sun right? and food and labor and raw material, like raw earth materials. And commerce, right? You start pulling, you start pulling at all, you end up like, you just, you know, just reeling it in. And, and soon the entire fabric of all of, you, all of existence comes into it. Stardust, right? The explosions of solar systems coming into being. You can't, you can't stop. When you start really looking, this is completely other dependent. And that's the second nature, the other dependent nature. The third nature is called the thoroughly established or the perfected nature. And basically what it is, it's the other dependent nature with all of the imagined nature about it, all the stories that we tell just removed. So those are the three natures. Imagined, which we as deluded beings take as real. Then there's the other dependent nature, which is which is not Buddha nature. The third one, the thoroughly established nature, you might be able to conceptualize it as Buddha nature. However, he says, so let me just continue with this last couple lines here. Thus, it, the accomplished nature, so this is what you're, you're referring to in terms of the Buddha nature, it, the thoroughly established nature, should be declared to be neither identical nor different from the other dependent nature, like impermanence, etc., when that, i.e. the dependent nature, is not perceived, then the thoroughly established nature is also not perceived. The non-substantiality of all elements has been preached for the sake of establishing the threefold non-substantiality of these three types of, of the three types of substances. So even here, he's saying this is all concept only. This is a, this is a story. The first one, the uh, imagined nature, is non-substantial in terms of characteristics. The magician's show is non-substantial. The other dependent is also one that possesses no self-nature. It can't. It's other dependent. Right? It doesn't have self-nature. And as such is a different form of non-substantiality. It's also not a substance because it's other dependent. The third the thoroughly established nature, is the ultimate meaning of all events, because it is also suchness. Since it remains such all the time, it is indeed mere concept. So suchness doesn't, it's just the way, it's just reality as it is, without anything extra added to it. It's kind of boring in some sense, to our egotistical, like, well, how does this relate to me and my life, minds? It's pretty, like, you know, not exciting. <laughs> it's just suchness, thusness. However, once we have an experience completely, and, and this is, I think, when you are meditating, to meditate, like, how do you meditate on this? What does it look like to meditate on these natures? To notice as you're sitting, 
when an appearance comes through your mind consciousness, right, or sense consciousnesses, as you're, you know, you've got the wall in front of you, and all kinds of things are happening, even though there's nothing really happening on the wall, right? Your mind is projecting all kinds of things, and we can see how those things, as they arise and cease, how they, they kind of perfume our seeds, right? So we, a certain thought comes up, and suddenly we're thrown back into like second grade, where you know little Jimmy took away our lunchbox, and we're like, oh, you know, it's it's amazing how this happens, right? Imagine nature. Now, suchness, reality as it is, it doesn't go through these machinations, right? Not to say that these machinations don't, they, they may be, this is what's happening. And so always we can take a step back and see, oh look, there's me getting triggered about something. It's a story. We create a story. It happens to be a story that's, you know, workable, that we, it's useful maybe, some stories that we create we know are not useful and actually lead to further division and alienation and uh, a complete like uh, obfuscation of the other dependent nature. Right? And that's where the meditation comes in to reflect deeply on the other dependent nature of all phenomena so that we don't get trapped into believing that this is real in this substantial way because that is what causes the suffering. So, yes. So it seems like we perceive that first nature and we conceptualize the second, but we can't really touch the third. But what the recommendation is, is to dive into the second to free you from the first? Yes, exactly. So what, is, what does it look like to dive into the second? So you said you can't, you touch it through conceptualization. Not only conceptualization do you touch the other dependent nature. We experience it all the time. And actually, I was thinking about this. In terms of, in this container of sashim, we have a bunch of forms, right? There's ways that we learn how to do things. And that just, for expedient means, it makes it easier on us, right? If everyone's, you know, so the, the, uh, the story of Suzuki Roshi and his, I don't know, maybe some hippie, I think of it, some, some hippie, practitioner who's like, why do I have to wear shoes, you know, or whatever, right? And they're like, you know, he's teaching them how to do a gasho. And there's some grumbling around, like, oh, you're trying to get us to conform, you're the man, right? Or something like that happens, right? You can imagine, this is my imagining, at least. And the person says, you know, pushes back on, like, hey, I don't want to conform to, like, we're all doing the same thing, you're, you're taking away my, you know, individuality. And Suzuki she says, you know, I can actually see you when you are all doing the same thing, then I can really see your individuality. But if you're all doing different things, I don't see, you know, I don't see your individuality. But when you're all trying to do the exact same thing, then I see how you're different from one another. And I can really appreciate your difference. I mean, everybody, do a gasho. Right? Now look around the room. We're all doing gasho, right? It's all the same, but every single person's gasho is unique. Some people are up here, some people are down here, some people's got their hands down there, right? We embody in different ways. And yet when we're doing the same thing, so for example, with serving or with service or the, knowing the timing of things, 
When it's constant, when it's consistent, then we notice when there's the, you know, the individual differences between different kokyos, between different doans, between different servers, right? But we have the forms as a guideline of just like, let's, okay, this is the convention. We're just doing this as a convention. When, you know, when the two bells ring at the, you know, in the beginning of Zaza and the two small bells, like that's the sit down. It's saying sit down. <laughs> then we all sit down, right? And some of these forms are, we're learning new forms, especially during this retreat where we started doing other forms that we haven't done before, right? So everyone's kind of learning new forms. So it's a little, you know, little, uh, there's some friction, you know, and some bumpiness, right? Imagine that we were only on day one of a 90-day sashin. You can imagine if we were on day 90 of a 90-day sashin where we've been doing these forms day after day, we wouldn't be worrying about the forms anymore. We would just be doing them, right? And then you really see difference when you're doing them. It's amazing. Like, my experience being at Tassajara, and maybe, Alfonso, you had the same, similar experience, of, like, you get to know people by the sound of their footsteps on the gravel. Like, you don't know who that is. That, you know, you don't have a visual sense. So I, all this is just to say that the other dependent nature is not just conceptual. And when we sit in zazen, we are open to everything, to all our senses. We don't cut, you know, we don't close our eyes, we don't close our ears. We're absorbing all of it. We're we're flowing along in the other dependent nature. And so it's not just it's not just thinking about it. It's actually embodied. It's an embodied understanding and awareness. And when we do these forms, that's one of the things, one of the things that comes out of doing forms together is to see how completely interdependent. Maureen, you used the word codependent. I was like... I did? Oh. <laughs> so yes, we're all codependent. It's codependent arising. There you go. <laughs> so I've done that too. But it's the dependent, dependent co-arising. So things appear... Not, not codependent arising. <laughs> there probably is some codependent arising too. <laughs> But dependent co-arising, as dependent co-arising is happening, I mean, when we have this, um, you know, sashin is like a dance. Right? We're doing a dance together. It has a lot of periods of just of silent sitting, which is part of the dance, right? But when we rise from sitting and we move our cushions into place and we pass out chant books and we, you know, put our hands together when the clap happens during serving and we're doing this all, you know, as I said, you know, learning it for the first time, it, it feels very clunky. But at some point, it just that becomes what you're doing, and it kind of takes over. And the the um, the talk, the internal talk about like, am I doing it right? Is this you know, is this okay? What is that? You know, that starts to subside, and then we're just in harmony with one another, and we get to really play in the field of dependent co-arising, to the point where we notice how if one thing that's that everyone kind of expects to happen doesn't happen it can throw the whole like the whole thing kind of it's like a chain of dominoes and all of a sudden it's like what now you know the, the servers don't know what time to come in because that thing that was supposed to happen didn't happen and and this is cascade of effects and it's humorous to see it right because we're just creating this together this dance 
the same thing. It's like if you're if you're we're whirling around the room, dancing with each other, and throwing partners over here and over there, and somebody's not there to catch somebody, you're going to get an accident, <laughs> right? So that was just to introduce these three these three natures, and then tomorrow I will go into the liberation aspect and the consciousness only aspect, and also um, bring in some Zen stories to put this into you know, into perspective. Okay.